Southbridge. Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. 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 Welcome. We're glad that you're here. And if you're joining us with friends, family, maybe you're from out of town, we're so glad that you chose to come to this church that meets at this place. And our desire is to make much of Jesus, to connect people to Jesus so that their lives would be changed just as many of us experience the life change of salvation provided through Christ birth, death, and resurrection. So that is our hope. And if you'd be inclined, we'd love to know how you found out about Southbridge. You can let us know by filling out the connection card, which you can find in your worship folder. You can take that filled out card to the first time guest tent where we have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying thank you for being here today. And folks, if this is your church, you've been around for a little while, this is made for you. And so we encourage you to take time to look at it. You can see what's been happening and what's uh, going to go on. And this morning we really uh, are in between a, a, a couple... S- a couple series, and uh, we just completed as a, as a church family a series based on um, people in the genealogy of Christ. It was called Dangerous Decisions. We looked at faith decisions that people made um, that fell on the line of Jesus that ultimately led to Christ's birth. In fact, we finished up that series on Christmas Eve. Um, we celebrate over a Christmas Eve gathering what God has done. We had the most people ever at a Christmas Eve service, and uh, more importantly, we had people that um, signified, showed that they um, received Christ as their Savior, and so we celebrate that. So it's still happening. Yeah, we're grateful. And so we, we complete that series, and um, you can see what's happening uh, throughout the next couple of weeks. Next week, our first church planner, Josh Tovey, he and his wife are here. Pastor Josh will be preaching next week. And then the following week, our lead pastor, Scott Lear, will be getting a new series. It's um, a study of the Gospel of Mark. And we'll divide it up into a few parts. It's really part one, just looking more at the life of Christ. And so for some folks, they're inclined to invite friends when we start new series. And so if you'd be inclined to invite some folks that... You'd like for them to experience what you've experienced and experienced through Southbridge. We welcome you to invite them starting on January 10th. In fact, on January 10th, um, we'll ha- also have at that time what we call an e-group expo. It's where people can look at all the open groups that we have, new groups starting. If you're interested in being a part of something with Southbridge throughout the week, um, a group is a great way to do that. And with it being the end of the year, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that for those of you that are also inclined to give an end um, of the year gift, you can still do that with Southbridge, and the instructions are in the worship folder on how to do that. So this morning, um, it's really in between a series message, and um, it's looking at the Christmas story, if we've led up all the way to the birth of Christ on Christmas Eve in our celebration, what should be preached this morning? And so I was actually investigating, where is the Christmas story in the rest of the Bible? And so with God's help, there is a message for you this morning, and uh, I'm going to ask for him to teach us this morning. So will you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather in your name with these people, that you've provided a place for us to meet. You've provided your son, Jesus Christ, our hope, our peace. Lord, I thank you for the hearts in this room that love to worship you. It's our joy to sing praises to your name, to fellowship with one another, to give of our tithes and offerings, and to study your word. And God, we ask that you would teach us, that your presence would be clear and known in this place, and that you would instruct us and guide us, confront us, and that we would leave change as a result of having an encounter with you this morning through your word. And we pray these things expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're someone that requires titles for sermons and you're a note taker, you could write this down. The title is, Why Celebrate Christmas All Year? And it's more than just the permission to be able to keep your tree up till Easter. In fact, does anybody actually keep the tree up till February? Be honest. I'm all alone. Yeah. 
You keep that dying tree thing going. Uh, the reason to celebrate Christmas all year is more than just singing those Christmas songs until July or changing, exchanging presents till May. There is a reason, and we see it in the scripture. And since Christmas is more than a date, in fact, December 25th is a date that we've agreed upon in Christendom. We don't know the exact date that Christ was born. But it is a date, and since it's more than a date, though, it's historical fact, and it's actually more than historical fact, there's actually implications of the fact that Jesus Christ was born. And that's the point of the Christmas story, isn't it? It's something to be celebrated. The point of Christmas is something to be celebrated every day, the whole year. And so the scriptures tell us, actually, in its simplicity, the point of Christmas. And uh, we see it in the, in the Gospels. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in Paul's writings. In fact, look at this statement from the scriptures. Here is the line that I think summarizes all of Christmas. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the point, isn't it? And so really, succinctly, the message this morning is how to celebrate Christmas all year round is by celebrating the point of Christmas, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the point. God, by love, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born in this world so that whoever would place their faith, their trust, confidence in Christ, his work, his life, his death and resurrection place their confidence in Christ, would not face eternal separation from God after death, but would have everlasting life with him through Christ. That is the good news of Christmas. Uh, That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the point of Christmas. And I believe that celebrating the point of Christmas year-round will make a difference in your life. And actually, not only a difference in your life, but may, probably will, can make a difference in the lives, an eternal difference in the lives of others around you. And on top of that, in every circumstance you face this next year, and we have no idea what you and I will face. You might have some guesses. You might have some ideas about what work life will be like or family life, physical health. You might have some ideas. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christmas, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners allows you in every circumstance you face this year, you can face it with confidence because nothing is bigger than the gospel. It's the most important thing. So the gospel continually applies to life and ought to lead and shape our view of circumstances in our lives. In fact, when it's not, when it doesn't shape that, that we've, made, we've made other circumstances bigger than that. Money stuff, work stuff, family stuff. When we tremble at the thought of some of the inconveniences or tragedies related to those things, sometimes we make those things bigger than the point of Christmas. And what is the point of Christmas, loved ones? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So thinking, speaking, living, the point of Christmas is how you celebrate Christmas all year round. And this phrase, Jesus Christ came into the world, or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is actually... Um, Christmas from the Apostle Paul's point of view. In fact, in preparation for the message, I was just thinking through, God, what would you have us teach? And where is Paul's statement of Christmas? With him, it's kind of a straight shooter. And some of you are like that. You, uh, whether you're from the north or the south, you're a straight shooter. You just want to know the facts. And Paul is like this. He doesn't lay out a nice nativity story for us. He just goes right to it each time. And then he shares with how its influence changed and determined his life. So this statement is actually borrowed from Paul, and it's from a letter he wrote to a young disciple of his that he's now left in a city alone to um, pastor a church. And the city was Ephesus. The name of that disciple is Timothy. And you can find this statement in your own Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 1. So turn there with me, would you? Open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In this letter, we see it's a, it's a personal letter from Paul to his disciple Timothy. He calls Timothy um, his son in the faith. He discipled him and then equipped him that he'd be a pastor to Christians in the city of Ephesus. And Paul reminds Timothy of the contrast in the beginning of chapter 1 between false doctrine, which includes the false confidence in one's ability to follow 
and abide all of God's law in contrast with the gospel and gospel living. That's his point. And then he's giving Paul or Timothy instructions on how church ought to go and what you should anticipate and how he should live. So that's the context of this letter, this special letter from Paul to Timothy. And we're looking at a key phrase, the Christmas phrase in it, and it comes in this letter. Look at verse 12. We'll start in verse 12 for context's sake. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord is poured out of me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is giving thanksgiving to God for the privilege of serving him. Thanking someone for the privilege of serving someone. Incredible. And he marvels at the thought because he once was of where he once was and where he is now. He just can't believe it. In verse 13, we catch a glimpse of Paul's testimony, the old days, if you will. And he shares what his life was like before Christ changed his life, a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer of God. This is how Paul um, now views his, himself, especially in light of the law. And more importantly, in light of who Christ is. He now recognizes that the law of God um, never showed how good he was, but how desperate he was and is in need of Jesus. So Paul said that before Jesus invaded his life, he acted in um, ignorance and unbelief. So his life was actually against God, even though he didn't know it. That's the ignorance. And all throughout his writings and ministry, as we read through the scriptures, and maybe some of you this last year read through the Bible in a year. We made challenges of that last year. Anybody get through that this year? Maybe think about it this next year. All throughout his writings and ministry, he simply and clearly shows how Jesus changed his life over and over again. It's interesting he's writing it to Timothy because Timothy's been hanging out with him for years already. So why is he telling Timothy this thing? Because it's the most important thing, celebrating Christmas all day, every day. The clearest narrative of this encounter with Jesus and Paul that we have is in the book of Acts. And I'm going to read for you just an extended passage of his life before Christ and when he came to know Christ. It won't be on the screen for you. I just want you to kind of key in, if you will, and listen and let me read it for you. Acts chapter 7. We actually taught through the whole book of Acts. It took us 18 months. And you can look this series up online if you'd like to listen and think more and look at it. Acts chapter 7 is where I'll start. It begins actually, um, for context's sake, where we see one of the first martyr for Christ. His name is Stephen, and the religious leaders um, uh, are not pleased with him. When they, these religious leaders, heard this, heard St- Stephen's preaching, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is Paul's Hebrew name. Paul would be, I guess, his Roman name, as some theologians say. So he's there. And while stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them, the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Reminds me of a bit of Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his, that is Stephen's, death. 
And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Fast forward to chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who believed or belonged to the way, that's a reference to those that believe in Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless because they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blinded and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of uh, Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Pretty clear, isn't it? In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, come and place his hand, your hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Are you sure, are you sure you're seeing right? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again. And I think that's literally and figuratively. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. This is Saul's story, and everyone who's in Christ has a story. And it's equally dramatic, because we were once ignorant and acted in unbelief, and Christ invades our life. Here is a truthful statement. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. When Paul says he acted ignorantly, and after reviewing that account, he's not claiming innocence, like when you confront a child for mistreating their brother or sister. Why did you hit him? I didn't, I didn't mean to hurt him. How would hitting not hurt him? I'm really confused. I don't know. Hmm. He's not claiming innocence. He's claiming that he lacked understanding. He lacked education, in a sense. He's, he's not excusing himself. It's simply a statement that he didn't understand the truth of Christ and his gospel. And if we're all honest, we can relate to, to Paul in some ways. We all lack education as it relates to faith and as it relates to life. For instance, we have this scam in North Carolina that you have to get your cars inspected. And the reason why it's a scam is because you can't get their approval until you give them $1,000. It's always $1,000. 
So when they come out and tell you, we're having trouble with the altimeter because it's just really flushed and real badly, and we're gonna, it's going to take a couple of days to get this all patched up, you're like, yep, here's my $1,000 because we lack ignorance. And I'm speaking about myself only because you guys probably know everything about it. We all have ignorant ways as it comes to our relationship with the Lord. We don't know all of who he is. And sometimes we act out of being uneducated. We act and live in ways that are out of tune with the Lord. For Paul, it just so happens that his ignorance led him to believe, actually, that his actions were God-pleasing. Paul wrote something more. He said he, he wasn't just ignorant, but Paul says that his former life of religious self-sufficiency was actually a way of um, unbelief, was the word that he used. Unbelief. And it's like he, um, he didn't believe that he needed a Savior. He had beliefs. We know that. He believed that he could be righteous enough. He followed the law the best he could. He could be righteous enough for God's favor. He was sincere in his beliefs, but he was sincerely wrong. It was unbelief in God's way and plan, most specifically unbelief in Jesus Christ as being sent as Messiah to save sinners. Remember, Jesus, the name, his name itself was given him because he will save his people from their sins. We all struggle with unbelief. We all struggle actually with self-sufficiency. And that's really where we see great stories of, of old take from this story. In fact, Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, that story is a story of what? Unbelief, self-sufficiency. When he's confronted by his first friend, his dead friend, Jacob Marley, remember? They're basically, Jacob is serving as an example and saying, you are like me, but worse. I cannot imagine the chain that you will have to hold. And then the great thing about the story that everyone loves about it is the change. And it was always said of him, he knew how to keep Christmas well. Yeah. He changed. But he was self-sufficient, and that was Paul. Scrooge came to the, to the grips of the fact that although he was alive, he was really dead. And when it comes to the Christmas message, there's a central point whereby we celebrate Christmas all year, and that is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's acknowledging why Christ was born. Christ came to save sinners, which means that sinners cannot save themselves. So no one is self-sufficient enough, even though our world tries to teach independence. The message of the gospel is something of dependence. We need a Savior. If we didn't need a Savior, then, the God, then God never had to send his Son. Many of us struggle with self-sufficiency. We, we want to say, no, I do it. I'll do it. I get this on Christmas morning when we exchange gifts with our kids uh, this past week. Some of the gifts come now in packaging that um, kids cannot remove the toy from the package. There must have been like, a lot of thefts at Toys R Us or something because these packages come like really, you need a chainsaw to get these things out. And so when our youngest one opens up gifts, when, he's, when he sees it, he wants to play with it now. And he wants to open it now. And so eventually he tries, he tries, he can't do it. And then I'll try to take it from him, but he's still saying, no, I do it. No, I do it. No, I'll do it. Actually, no, I can't do it. Amanda, can you try this? <laughs> Scissors, keys, turning this now to make the toy fall out, all this stuff. No, I do it. I do it. How many of us are a no, I do it to God? I've sent my son for you. You are not self-sufficient. You can't save yourself. No, I do it. That's anti-gospel. That's anti-the Christmas message. Paul believed that by attempting to maintain the law, which is impossible, 
and trusting in his own steadfastness in it, in his abilities, that he could be counted as righteous. That was the teachings that he was received and he sought to live by. He acted in ignorance and unbelief. Unbelief in what? That this Jesus could be possibly the way, the truth, and life because Jesus seemed opposite of Paul's system, Saul's system of religiosity. And after being confronted with Jesus, with the truth, if you will, that all changed, and that's the story we read. Look at verse 15 again, our key text this morning. Look at your Bibles. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, Paul writes to Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst. Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. I'm saying this is the Christmas statement made by Paul. The most succinct Christmas story he can, he can share is this. Your translation might say, um, faithful is the word. And Paul uses this phrase a few times in his pastoral letters. The pastoral epistles are um, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And he uses this phrase, faithful is the statement, or true is the word, faithful is the word, trustworthy is the statement, and then he shares the statement. And some people believe that perhaps this statement right here is one that was held in common by all the churches, and it was a statement they would share with one another, so it became like a Christian saying, Something that was held tightly onto a tightly held belief by all the churches. And we have some as well in our days. It just might not be this one for some reason. To prove that we have some, I think some of us might know this from our traditions. God is good. All the time. time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Who taught us that? It's a tightly held belief. It's statements. It's a trustworthy statement. Let go and... That's a little kind of there, maybe. Um, God helps those who... Now, that's garbage, okay? That's not Bible. I think that's Ben Franklin. Great inventor. Not the Lord. This is a trustworthy statement, loved ones, because um, Jesus makes the same statement himself and then follows through with the statement. That's why Paul has confidence about it. Because of what he knows now of what Christ Jesus has done. Does everyone have ready on their lips this morning the testimony of Christ Jesus coming to the world to save sinners? It's a gospel-filled statement. This is trustworthy because Jesus said it himself. A couple examples. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13 is one form of how he says it. Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but... Sinners, I've come, I was born, I came here to save sinners. Another example, just a little bit different, it's the same idea. For the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking about himself, came to seek and save that what was lost. So when it comes to those that are lost, he uses another word another time, sick, needing to be, meeting a doctor. Sinners, or the class of sinner Christ came to save. Paul says in our text, verse 15, I am the worst. The word worst here, when Paul says that in our text, um, means uh, chief or first in rank. And Paul knew that he had blasphemed God and that he persecuted believers because Jesus told him so. And he woke up, he could now see, and then he changed. He recognized what he had been doing and what must be done. This isn't false humility, by the way, when Paul says, I'm the worst. Some people put that on him. Some theologians or some Bible teachers put that on Paul. He's, he's not being, faking um, humility so as the writers be endeared to him, Timothy, that is. This is how actually Paul feels about himself and feels about his life in view of the holiness of God. As Paul grew an understanding of who God is, not just God's law, but now God's love, grace, mercy, his, his immense patience, 
the greater he grew in understanding of himself. And so isn't it true that those who draw close to Christ are, are usually most aware then of how much they are not like Christ? There's a huge gap between God and mankind. And we do that with each other. We, we compare each other, ourselves to each other's fellows, other fellows, or sometimes moms, other moms. We do this. I, compare, I can try to compare myself to other people here that I know are farther along. I mean, I think it's, sometimes it's easier that, but sometimes with God, we think, we well, you know, I was a pretty good person. At least I didn't kill anybody like Paul. Self-sufficiency. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. In fact, have you heard, like, the, basically the measure of goodness is this. Well, I've never killed anybody. Well, then that really stinks for the people that have killed someone because that would mean there's no hope for them. And yet here we have Paul marveling at the grace of God through Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, of which he says he is the worst. We see an example of this in other people in Scripture. One of the famous examples in Scripture is Peter. You probably know this one in Luke chapter 5. There's this amazing exchange where Christ does a miracle, and he's actually doing a miracle in the area of expertise by Peter, who's a fisherman. And so Jesus gives him some fishing tips. Peter's not quite sure to believe him because he's really good. And then a miraculous catch happens, and then Peter wakes up, and he says, do you know this one in your hearts, loved ones? Uh, Away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Why did he say that? Because he sees the difference. That's exactly what Paul says as he's writing to his servant, Timothy, his loved one, Timothy, his son in the faith, Timothy, I am, there's a huge difference between me and Christ. And when he says this, it actually carries a couple of um, implications for you and I, some important implications. And if you're a note-taker, you should write these down. Since Paul himself has experienced salvation, a couple things, they won't be on the board for you, a couple things. Number one, since he has experienced salvation, number one, no one can say they are too sinful to be saved. This is significant because I don't know if you all know this, but weekly people will come here to our, our midst, our fellowship, and even actually attend some of your groups where people actually say themselves, I am too bad for God, which is actually a form of self-righteousness. God's awesome, but not awesome enough. Paul's saying that thought has to be undone. Not true. So, number one, no one can say they are too simple to be saved. And number two, no Christian should view any sinner as a hopeless case. Amen. So who's the worst person you know? And how many of us just said ourselves? I don't know. Because that's how Paul talks. Isn't that strange? No Christian should view any sinner as a hopeless case. At Southbridge, we have this phrase, this saying, and maybe you've heard it. It's really related to our vision as a church. It's a question that goes, who's your one? Have you heard that here? It's really related to a vision statement a couple years ago shared with the idea of trying to have 10 people over the next 10 years that you're intentionally pursuing, that you want to see them come to know Christ, and we've really boiled it down to as a leadership and just um, as a membership at a church, is who's your one? It's a phrase that we ask, like, who are you praying for and pursuing and sharing with and serving that they might come to know Christ as you've come to know Christ? When you think about that one, and you think about the two principles we got here, does that one say themselves, I am too far gone to be saved? Or do, they, do you think to yourselves ever, Jesus can save anybody, but my friend or this person in my mind is way off. She does a gospel of the service when we have the, those things in mind. Who's your one? And that's actually what the original disciples thought about Paul. Did you catch that when I was reading the story? When God confronts through a vision Ananias to go find this guy Saul, Ananias kind of corrects or asks, inquires of the Lord, 
Uh, I've heard about him. He's bad. Later on in the book of Acts, we see that this new Paul, this Saul Paul guy, now gets brought before the apostles, the 11 plus, or yeah, plus the new apostle, and they aren't sure. They're not sure. Why? Because you forget you're the worst. You forget that you didn't save yourself, that you needed a savior, and that Christ can do the impossible. For with him, all things are made possible. We see this over and over again this past week at Southbridge. We, at, we saw people at Christmas Eve service say yes to the gospel. Over the last year, we saw over 60 people at least identify that they've made a statement of faith, that they've given their lives to Christ. And if you're here today and you, you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ, you can do that today. You can do that right now in your seat as you recognize that you know you're not perfect and you are in need of a Savior. Your sin can be atoned and is atoned through Christ's death and resurrection. Or you can seek to atone for it for yourself by being a good boy, but you'll never be good enough. So your only alternative is Christ, and there's no other Savior coming. This is it. And you're invited. You're invited. And you'll be welcomed, and you are welcomed in this fellowship. That's what Paul has in mind with the Christmas story, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who or which I am the worst. So since Christ Jesus came to sinners, saved me, what would it be like to love someone enough than to tell them this year about Jesus? Because you might be thinking to yourself, okay, this Christmas stuff, I'm over it, Christmas is done, and now you're under your resolution. So maybe this year your resolutions are, I want to lose weight, I want to save money, I want to be nicer, I want to do a better job with my kids. What about something that is necessarily about you, but about others? For eternal purposes. And here's the one. If you want a resolution, here's the best one you can come up with. It's better than weight loss or getting out of debt. Those are great things. How about this one? This year, I promise, or I'm going to, or I resolve that since Christ came to save sinners and he saved me, I'm going to love someone enough to tell them about Christ and how Jesus changed my life. That's the most important one. What would that be like, loved ones? There's nothing more important than that. That's why we exist. That's why God still has breath in your life so that you might be a blessing to others. When you go and tell someone about Jesus but aren't sure about what to say, and some of us are like that, we just get anxious or we're not sure and we think that the weight of their soul is on us and that's not true and that we have to be clever in how we craft things or answer every question. Mm -mm. Just give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ and you can actually follow Paul's pattern here. Did you catch it? Just tell your friend, your loved one, someone at work that you're thinking about that's your one, who you were and who you are. And then simply say, I'm not who I want to be yet, but I'm not who I was. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about their need for Christ. And tell them about God's great love for them through Christ. And then share with them why he saved you. Okay, now this is not one that a lot of times people teach or equip the saints with, but it'd be good to have an answer to that question. Do you know why Christ saved you? And Paul gives us an answer for his life in this, and I think it probably applies to ours. Paul shares an answer to why Christ chose to save him. Look at verse 16. Look at your Bibles. But for that very reason, for the reason of him being the worst, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul says that Christ is using him as an example. The word Paul uses here for an example can also be um, pattern, sketch, or model. An example of what we should ask as good Bible students. Um, Paul was living proof that God can change anyone. 
And Paul's life changes an example of Jesus Christ's unlimited patience, he says, which was, in his context, a restraining of God's rage against sin. It was by God's great mercy to Paul that he didn't extinguish him. An example to whom, Paul tells us, to those who would later believe. Believe in what? The scriptures tell us, in Jesus, that he came to save sinners. Clear, easy, and he does it over and over and over and over again the rest of his days. The same message over and over and over again. I bet Timothy was never bored, even though it was the same message every time. Paul says that Christ chose him because of his sinfulness. Because of that, he says, and there's, that means this, there's always a reason that God is doing and saving and working and changing lives. There's always a reason, and it's when he came to change your life, it was more than just you. It had something to do more than just with you. So you have to have an answer to the question, well, why would Christ save you? Is it because you were so awesome? No, it's because he's awesome. Well, then for what reason? Probably something to do with others. For those here who are saved, it's, it's not about you, but a ripple effect of blessing as you share the gospel and serve others that need the gospel. That's the point of Christmas. So why keep the point of Christmas at the forefront of your minds all year? Answer, because there are people who are ignorant and live in unbelief who desperately need to know and experience the love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of the ever-patient Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why. So who in your life, as you're thinking about your life, who in your life needs to hear and see the point of Christmas displayed through you? Do you have that person in mind? In your heart? Who is your one this year? Again, Paul says that the reason Jesus showed him mercy and demonstrating patience to him while he was doing what he was doing was because of using him as an example to others. And I think that's the reason why when we place our faith in, when I trusted in Christ when I was seven, I wasn't just brought up to heaven at that point because I think God had good works for me to build the rest of my days and those good works weren't to make God happy with me because he wanted to use me as an instrument of others to others' lives. Now, Christ is one that changes life. I don't change a life. I've tried to change a life and I'm terrible at it. I come off as a guilter, a manipulator, all this stuff. I'm terrible at it. He's gentle at it and wise and perfect. And I just welcome people to get to know him. That's the mission. That's why we should celebrate. See, Paul gets that Christ was merciful to him. He gets that salvation and life change is a gift, not payment from God to, to people for being religious. Therefore, no one could ever brag about the change they did in their own life. Eternal worth, value, change. You might lose weight this year. You might save more money this year. But that soul work, if you don't know Christ, it's impossible because the Spirit, God's Spirit does that work in you. So as a custom for Paul in his letters, it's so interesting of a trend for him. He's moved to worship as he's writing his friend. He's writing his story. He's writing it again. Timothy already knows the story, but he's writing it again. He's charging Timothy on how to be a good pastor in Ephesus. He's writing, and then he just flows right into worship. Did you see it? Did you read ahead? Did you cheat? Verse 17. And this is what happens. This kind of thought always flows to worship. Look at verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Ignorance, self-sufficiency, and unbelief always rob God of worship. 
But Paul, now in understanding of what God has done for him through Jesus Christ, by grace, worships. So he writes this worshipful doxology. He does the same in the book of Romans. He does it all the time. God gets all the praise. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that, that the more you realize who Jesus is and what he's done on your behalf, the more that you exalt Christ and not yourself? You struggle with worship, it's probably because you have a low view, a small view of Jesus. You can't come together in, in fellowship and sing more than a couple songs until your worship muscles are so weak. It's probably because you have a low view of Jesus. So there's time this year to maybe work out those muscles a bit. Think about what Christ has done on your behalf. Think about those that now need to know Christ because of what he's done on your behalf. Paul always flows to worship. So the reason then we don't celebrate Christmas all year isn't because we're finally annoyed by the Christmas songs or the tree is dying or we can't watch that movie again. The reason why we don't is because we've made the point of Christmas something very different than Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Why celebrate Christmas all year? Because Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And there are people that are still in need of being saved. And God will use you to reach them as you testify about the point of Christmas being true in your life. And you'll be the best worshiper you've ever been until we get in glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your servant, Paul. We worship you. And Lord, we're so grateful for the gift of salvation you provided through Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for anyone who here who has never believed. And then today would be the day they believe in your son, Jesus Christ. His birth, his crucifixion, his death on our behalf, and his glorious resurrection in that we worship a risen Savior. We worship you. Help us, Father. Please give us the strength and courage to worship you throughout all our days to celebrate the point of Christmas all year this year by being clear and in love, telling and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We want to be a church, Lord, that's unified around this and unified in our presence in this city as you go before us that we might be a light in a dark place, pointing people to light, the light who is Christ himself. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.